hear God's word to you this morning. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But once she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket along the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. That says the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless us our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Mm-hmm. So this morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to be taking a look at the story of Moses' ark. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, Pastor Santo, you're getting senile. I think you got your stories a little mixed up. You got your wires mixed up. It's not Moses' ark. It's Noah's ark. He's the one. He and his family went in the ark, and God delivered them from the mighty waters. Moses, he's the guy that got God's call, what, at the burning bush. So you're a little bit mixed up this morning. All right, so my bad. No, actually, I'm not. I didn't get this mixed up. I said it on purpose. Because today's story is going to be about Moses' ark. Now, of course, as we look at Exodus chapter 2, above all, it's going to be about God rescuing his chosen deliverer, Moses, via a tiny ark, so that he could deliver the descendants of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., Now, we just read the text. Uh, We saw that when Pharaoh um, decreed last week that all the male Hebrew children were to be thrown in the Nile and left to die, there was a Levite woman who wrapped her three-month-old son up in a basket and placed him in the Nile in order to save him from a watery grave. But we have another instance here where it's good to know a little tiny bit of Hebrew at least. Because the Hebrew word for basket, guess what it is? It's ark. The very same word used in Noah's Ark and the only other place in the Bible, um, unless it's referring to Noah's Ark. So this is the second time in the Bible that we have an Ark, and we have another um, instance of this, uh, so that we could see it is uh, Moses' Ark. Now, it's a tiny Ark to be sure, but it's an Ark nonetheless, and it's complete, notice in the text, with tar and pitch. See that? You had to put together so that it wouldn't sink. So here in Exodus 2, what we actually have is a fascinating account of how the Lord used, uh, listen to this, listen to this, a Hebrew slave woman, her young daughter, 
and an Egyptian princess to rescue one of the most, if not the most, celebrated, celebrated, excuse me, deliverer of God's people in the Old Testament. No one in the Old Testament was greater than Moses. The one whom God would deliver his people. Once again, this is pretty interesting when you look at how these things tie together, that God would use Moses to deliver his people out of what? Out of water. Right? Onto dry land. A little pattern going on here in the Bible. Now, indeed, the women in this chapter all play a vital role in the story, humanly speaking. Notice it is women here. Um, and both Old and New Testaments mention how they were used by God to further his kingdom purposes. But what's interesting here is the author leaves no question as to who is the central figure, humanly speaking, because only one person is mentioned by name. Who is it? It's baby Moses. He's the only one that's actually singled out. Even though the only thing he does in this whole chapter is cries. That's his part. Oh, do, is it my turn yet? And what is his big role? He cries. It's pretty funny. There's no question who the real hero of the story is. I'd be very guilty and we'd be, uh, we'd be missing the forest for the trees if we didn't step back, take a big, bigger picture and see as with all biblical texts, so hopefully through our preaching, Pete and I, as we preach, we hope we help you understand as you read the Bible that you can interpret more accurately that the real hero behind this whole story is the Lord God. It's how he orchestrates all events in her church history for his purposes, for his glory, to deliver his people. That's the real hero from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about the God of Israel, the God of all creation, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very specific. And how he does these things, he delivers us for two reasons, for his glory, first and foremost, but secondly, for our good. The two aren't, the two aren't mutually exclusive. You can't now, as you read this story, I, I don't care who you are, you can't help but see his fingerprints in every step of the story. Uh, even though he's not necessarily mentioned all the time, you see his handiwork orchestrating everything behind the scenes, every stop of the way. And as we hear the story read, as we hear it explained this morning to our lives today, we got to remember that here, it's very important to see, ultimately it's here to teach us that even the darkest, in the darkest times for God's people, even when it's extremely difficult to see, ever hear people say, the light at the end of the tunnel? You know, sometimes people try to encourage you, and they say, it's always darkest before the dawn. And some days that just kind of falls flat, because I ain't seeing no light at the end. And the whole fact that it gets darker before the dawn might not be helping me at the moment. And yet God gives us his word so that we can by faith know for a fact that even when it is hard for us to see that God is indeed at work fulfilling his promise to set his people free so that they can glorify him and enjoy him forever. God's constantly doing that. And we're going to see that he did it back then just as he did it in Christ Jesus, the new covenant times. 
And I don't just say that lightly. When you look at the text, it's so obvious that Moses is a type of Christ. He's a shadow of Christ. He's pointing ahead. To, he is not the ultimate deliverer. As we're going to see later, uh, he's a murderer. And what does a murderer need? Redemption. No, he points ahead to the one who is the perfect Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the one who is not a murderer, who is exactly like us in every way except for what? Sin. So as we walk through the text, I only have two things that are going to come out uh, up to the top, two points, and that's this. God uses even the evil intentions of man to further his plan. Man, preachers love that when it rhymes. But the second thing, I don't know, it didn't rhyme that well, I don't think, but it doesn't matter. It's still true. So although God always carries out his, oh yeah, it does rhyme. Although God always carries out his plan, believers always do what they can. Look at that. I got a, I'm so proud of myself, right? All right, but we're going to start with the second one. Let's hope that uh, I do a little better than that. We're actually going to go backwards. We're going to start with the first one. Although, although God always carries out his plan, believers do all they can. Right? It's kind of counterintuitive sometimes. Well, if God's going to do it, then we could just sit back and ever hear people say that? Or worse yet, you ever really think that? God's got this. What's on Netflix? Right? We'll talk about trying difficult times to be born into as I thought about this. I couldn't help but think of folks who say things like this, and I've heard this way too many times in my, my life, and that is, you know, we just didn't think it was fair to bring a child into this horrible world. You ever heard that? Sure you have. I've heard it too many times. Well, thank the Lord he does continue to bring children into this dark, falling, wicked place. Even though it's a world of sadness and it's a world of trouble, and God's people can be deeply grateful that during these dark days of Israel, some of the darkest days in Israel, when the king of Egypt commanded all male babies to be thrown in the Nile River and to be drowned, a child was born. And a son was given. One who would deliver them out of the house of bondage into a land flowing with milk and honey. i got to say amen. Praise the Lord. We read this in the Bible. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman from the tribe of Levi, that is. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, and in Hebrew is when she saw he was good. What does that sound like? Remember, this is Genesis part two. And God created everything and he saw that it was what? Good. And she saw that he was good. So she hid him for three months. Now, commentators uh, rightly point out, but I'll show you there's a little twist here that they, many of them don't, at least don't mention whether they see it or not, um, that the narrative from the end, of, the end of chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 2 is highlighted, highlighted by women. It's women who are the main actors, humanly speaking. Last week we saw how it was two Hebrew midwives, how they defied Pharaoh's orders to kill the male Hebrew babies, because Why? They feared God more than men because they had reverence and trust in the Lord God Almighty. They refused to be a part of murdering children. And I'm going to go off my notes just for a few moments here because I just I feel compelled that I have to mention this. Especially as we approach an election, nobody knows what's going to happen. I mean, God knows. 
but you and I, we could guess. We don't know. Um, but I will tell you this. This is the one thing that I think has to happen no matter who the president of the United States is. What has to happen is the Church of Jesus Christ has to be more united, and we have to hate the things that God hates. And we have to love the things that God loves. So what's interesting to me, what we have right in this text, where I couldn't pass it up, we have in this text where you have two women of faith who say, I cannot be a part of killing life. Life is precious. God created everybody in his image. And that means before birth as well. They don't suddenly become human when they come out of the womb. And in our culture today, here's the sad thing to me. This is what the thing that really broke my heart. In, in this time period, what was it? It was um, an evil despot, right? An evil dictator that forced them to kill babies. In our culture, we willingly do it to ourselves. It's a democratic culture, and we want to keep it legal so we have the option. On demand. And even Governor Cuomo, I'm going to call one person out. Governor Cuomo signed a law into effect that you can abort a bit, you can kill a baby up to nine months old. Remember when the argument used to be, is it a baby or not? Well, apparently that's not the argument anymore. I'm going to stop there. But as people of faith, we need to protect life. Whatever in our sphere of influence that we can do. Like these two midwives said, you know what? Whatever happens, happens. But we're not going to do it. The other thing here is what I want you to see, which is equal, equally heinous. And it's funny how there's two sides of the aisle. That one that, that uh, really points out how evil abortion is, and the other points out how evil racism is. Amen. We see that in, in Exodus as well. What did it say about the, the um, Egyptians? They despised who? The Israelites. We need to get together as a church and say both things are heinous. We need to, we need, because there are a section of the church, if you say black lives matter, they get all squirrely. They get all nervous. I get letters written. When all we're simply affirming is that black lives matter also. I don't have to be affiliated with the political Black Lives Matter movement, but I certainly believe in the statement. And if you're a believer, you should too. And we see it in the text. And it's very interesting that it's women that paved the way here. We're willing to stand up for life. And we'll see what God does to those who oppress his people. And who enslaved them, by the way. All right, back to chapter 2. So now we see there's three other women mentioned other than the two um, midwives. And now we have a Hebrew slave woman, Moses' mom. We have her young daughter. She's a, she's a spitfire. Wait till we see her. And then you have the Egyptian princess, which, by the way, I just want to point this out, too. You know, we judge all people by color or by race or by nationality. And here's a woman who defied her own dad. Because she was a human being and had compassion on the baby. But that's, I want to mention that as well. So we have this Levite woman. She gave birth to a son during the, a very perilous time in the history of God's people. 
And she noticed something special about her newborn, it says here in the text, when she saw that he was a fine child. Um, she hid him for three months. Now, we might not know um, exactly what that means, but Hebrews 11 kind of helps us out a little bit. If we turn to Hebrews 11, verse 23 in the New Testament, it gives us some insight into her motivation for doing what she did, but also it includes her husband, which I'll talk about in a moment. Hebrews eleven twenty three says this, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Psst. Man. Now, first of all, we got to see that she hit her son, two little words, by faith. If we have a saving faith that trusts fully in the work of Jesus Christ, not in our own work, that confidence in Christ will show itself in actions. You know, I can't see faith in your heart, but I can see it through what you do. And the writer Hebrew says, by, uh, says this, that by faith, her and her husband hid the boy for three months. Now, here's what's interesting. The husband isn't mentioned in this text, is he? You don't see him like outright spoken about in chapter two. And I wrestled with it. I'm like, where is he? And why isn't he outright mentioned? And none of the commentators, they all gloss over. They quote from Hebrews, but they don't at all talk about why he's missing. And then literally God just, I, I, I'm going to say this because I'm not smart enough. It hit me. It dawned on me. Guess where he was? He was a slave. So he was out in the field making bricks for Pharaoh. That's where he was. And so it makes only makes sense. It only stands the reason that his mom would have the job of hiding the baby and caring for the baby because he'd be out from sun up, sun down, working like a dog. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is she did this with his full cooperation, full knowledge, and he was for it. Even if it meant risking all their lives, he was behind her. And that's the bottom line. And think about this. You, well, what, what danger could there be? I'll tell you what the danger could be. You ever try to keep a baby quiet? You know, when a baby wants to cry, it's rough trying to quiet. And especially, let's say, you know, there's guards coming by, you know, Pharaoh's guards. You can imagine the crying, the cooing, the yelling, whatever. It'd be extremely difficult to keep the baby under wraps. And it only gets better for it from there, because in the text it says, when she could hide him no longer. In other words, it got to a point where she's like, I just can't keep this baby under wraps anymore. She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. Now, stop. Stop, rush past this. Take a couple seconds to drink this in. Can you imagine how much faith that would take? to take your three-month baby, old baby boy, your pride and joy. You know he's a special child. There's something about him. I don't know how they knew it, but they knew, hey, there's, he's destined for something. And I have to have enough faith, enough trust to put him on the, the shallow end of the river where the reeds are and then just hope against hope. Lord God, you have a plan. Somebody's going to get him. Somebody's going to find him. Somebody's going to take mercy on him. 
just imagine her wrestling. How can I do this? And yet the Bible just tells us as a matter of fact, and that's exactly what she did. F.B. Huey, one commentator, puts it this way. God's plan for the deliverance of his people was now reduced to the slender thread of a tiny baby under a decree of death set adrift on a river in a fragile basket. Hundreds of years later, his plan for the deliverance of mankind would again be reduced to the slender thread of a tiny baby, this time in a manger in Bethlehem. You know, humanly speaking, it doesn't really... It very often doesn't look good for God's kingdom. And I, I hate to bring up this, this um, illustration. I always do, but it just so reminds me of it. If anyone's a Star Wars fan, I'm a fan of the first three Star Wars. And I remember um, Return of the Jedi, and you had Han Solo. He was blind. He was just about getting it. It took a while for him to get his eyesight back. And he's with Luke. Luke's delivering him and, and freeing him. And, you know, with the gang, you had R2, uh, three, was R2-D2 and all the other folks and Princess Leia. And all of a sudden, uh, Han Solo goes to Luke, how we doing? And Luke goes, same as always. And Han Solo goes, that bad, huh? <laughs> That's how we, right, with the kingdom of God and the church, how we doing? Same as always, that bad, huh? Well, think about it. When your hopes are tied to a baby going down a river in a little ark in Egypt, when there's a decree for all those babies to die and be drowned, doesn't sound like there's a lot of hope, humanly speaking. But we see there's another little girl in the story, and this was, uh, by the way, you know who this is, right? If you kept reading through Exodus, this is Miriam. This is Miriam who was by no uh, by uh, Moses's side, her her special brother's side, uh, throughout his time of serving as a prophet for God's people and as a deliverer. So she was a woman of faith as well, even as a little girl. And you know what's interesting is even here she's doing her part in God's plan. And that reminds us, so often we prepare for the future, which is a good thing, but we forget God wants to use us wherever we are, whatever age we are. As my one friend Mike Higgins likes to put it, youth is no excuse. God had a plan for Miriam even as a child. She had to play her role. And she was used mightily of God in this very little, simple, but important way. She followed the baby off far enough so that no one would see this as a setup to see what would happen so that uh, who knows how she would be able to play a part, but we know that she ended up doing that. Enter now Pharaoh's daughter, the princess. She's out taking a, a bath in the Nile. She went and her attendants were walking along the riverbank and she saw the basket among the reeds. She sent her slave girl uh, to go get it, it says in the text. She opened it and saw the baby and then here we go, here, he's, here's Moses' big line. This is like in the act. He was crying. And she felt sorry for him. And then she said, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Again, she could have said, this is one of the Hebrew babies. We got to get rid of it. Right? But she doesn't. The baby's crying hit a soft spot in her, and she felt sorry for him. And she knew full well this is a Hebrew baby, but she defied her own dad. And then this is where the irony gets real thick. This is where the story gets fun. Verse 7. Then her sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. I love this. 
Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take the baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, what a quick thinking and witty little girl, no? And I also think, I got to think of Hebrew here, she had chutzpah. I mean, think about it. She had the guts to address the princess. I think that, that tells you a lot about the spunky young girl. And then she says, hey, uh, you want me to go get a nurse for her from among the Hebrews? You know, maybe, <laughs> I love that. And the Pharaoh's daughter's like, yeah, go ahead. But here's the irony. Here's the great thing. She runs, gets her mom right away. Her mom comes into the presence of the princess, and then the mom, mom says, hey, would you mind nursing the baby for me? I'll pay you. Now, let's just stop for a minute. How many ladies would love to be paid to nurse their own kid? Do you see the irony? You're getting paid by the state. Take care of your own kid. I mean, that's a pretty good deal. But there's something more important here. She and her husband would get uh, the opportunity to instruct and to nurture Moses in the, ad, the teaching and the admonition of the Lord, of the Lord during, his, during his most formative years. You realize this, right? When his personality is being formed, when his identity is being formed, he would be raised among the Hebrews. He would learn about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the mighty deeds of the Lord. Because later, when God reveals himself to Moses, we'll get to that in chapter 3, he says, I am the God of your father. That would make no sense to Moses if he wasn't trained in the ways of the Lord. It's totally amazing. So perfect and amazing is God's incredible providence, isn't it? George Bush, not the politician, the, the, the ex-president, but a commentator in the late 1800s, puts it this way. This is a beautiful illustration of the connection which should always exist between the diligent use of means and a pious trust in providence. Instead of sitting down in sullen despair or passive dependence upon divine interposition to do all the work, everything is done which can be done by human agency. So in case you're a little bit blank on that, Keith Green put it this way. Keep doing your best and Jesus will take care of the rest. Just keep doing your best. And the point is, knowing that God will orchestrate everything according to his will doesn't make us lazy, doesn't make us kick back, say, well, I guess we don't have to do anything. The opposite. It makes us, it stirs us up by faith to do everything in our power, knowing that God's will will be done. Just keep doing your best, pray that it's blessed, and Jesus will take care of the rest. That's exactly what Moses' mom does. Moses' sister. So although God always carries out his plan, believers do all they can. And a second shorter uh, point I want to point out, last point for today, is that God uses even the evil intentions of man to further his plan. That's really the big overarching thing to take from this passage. If you get nothing else from it, I hope you get this. The mightiest ruler of the known world in those days, I am, this is not an exaggeration, the Pharaoh asserts his evil will and makes a decree to kill off all the male babies of God's chosen people. Realize that's what he did. 
But God so superintends things so that this evil decree, what was meant for evil, God sets in motion the very events that will lead to the humbling of the kingdom of Egypt. It will bring them to their knees and will exalt his people and free them to worship him in spirit and in truth. Where have we seen that before? Genesis part one. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. The delivering of many lives. Now, how ironic, this really hit me, is it that his own daughter would be used. Think about this, Pharaoh. His own daughter would be used as the instrument through which baby Moses would be given, listen to this, the best education and training that the great, great nation of Egypt had to offer. Not only was he raised up and protected, but he had access to the best. Acts 7, 22, in case you think that's something I'm making up. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, the Bible tells us, and was powerful in speech and in action. So God says, oh yeah? Watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to actually have your kingdom train them as a prince. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So every step of the way, we see God's hand leading Moses' parents, leading his sister, even the Pharaoh's daughter, and even baby Moses to cry at the perfect moment so that he would tug on the princess's heartstrings to carry out his plan to raise up and prepare the deliverer of his people. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in Ephesians 1.11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. I don't know about you, but how comforting that is to know that my God and Father works out everything, even what the devil means for evil. He works out everything for the purpose of his will, for his glory, for our good, for the deliverance of his people. And that's where... Martin Luther comes in. He may be the devil, but he's God's devil. <laughs> and what he means by that, he's on a leash. He can only do what God wants him to do. And that we're going to see is one of the main themes throughout this whole book is that God's purpose here is to deliver his people out of the bondage of Egypt so they could worship and glorify him in the promised land. For his glory, for their good. And we'll see that more and more as we get deeper and deeper in this wonderful book of Scripture, that God is going to glorify himself, he's going to glorify himself by redeeming his people. Again, it's not an either-or. Is this book about God redeeming his people, or is this book about God glorifying himself? Guess what? It's both. So stop making friends enemies, trying to make friends enemies. That's how he's going to glorify himself, with a mighty hand. So this one, as we're coming to a close here, I want you to see something here that, that really struck me. God's people are not immune to pain, right? Because they were going through it this time. But they are destined for eternal gain. Isn't that awesome? That yes, we might have to go through many trials to enter through the kingdom of heaven. Through the kingdom of heaven, as it says in Acts. But we know that we will get to our desired haven. 
because God has promised and he's kept every single one of his promises and he always will. God did raise up a deliverer who would lead his people out of Egypt into a land flowing of milk and honey. And the way he would do it is through simple, ordinary human beings, flawed, imperfect, weak, vessels of clay, so that he gets the glory. Now, of course, this was just a precursor of how God would use another Hebrew, peasant Hebrew couple in the future from this point to raise up another one greater than Moses, our Lord Jesus Christ, who also had to flee to escape the decree of another mad ruler named Herod. Remember him? Who had all the Hebrew babies, two boys, two years under, slaughtered. And so Jesus, as a baby boy, had to flee. And why did that have to happen? Listen, this is what we're going to close with, and I think this is so important to understand. Because Mo Moses needed a deliverer. Because Miriam needed a savior, and it wasn't her son. Because the Israelites, who sure, were saved out of bondage from Israel, still needed to be saved from the bondage of their sins. And that could only come through Messiah Jesus, the one we worship and adore and walk with by faith this very morning, and whose meal we're about to partake in together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though we, as your people, are not immune to pain, we will have to face that one shape or form or another in this life, that we know for sure that Jesus has won for us eternal gain. In the life of the world to come, new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more sin, no more crying, no more death. And we'll have new bodies that we won't have to pray for anymore. And we won't be separated from you or from one another, even temporally, for breaking fellowship. We thank you for the meal we're about to partake of. And we thank you that you delivered your people as promised through Moses, but you have delivered all your people ultimately now. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.